in a speech before the Virginia Secession Convention in 1861, late April, in the wake of the firing on Fort Sumter, the newly elected, sort of appointed Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander H. Stevens, gave a speech that became quickly known to history as his cornerstone speech. This is spring, 1861, Alexander H. Stevens, a Georgian, a slaveholder, an old friend and colleague of Abraham Lincoln's, ironically, said the cornerstone of the Confederacy, the cornerstone of their political movement, was what he called American Negro slavery. It was the cornerstone on which they had founded their revolution. The quote goes on. As a race, the African is inferior to the white man. Subordination to the white man is his normal condition. He is not his equal by nature and cannot be made so by human laws or human institutions. Our system, therefore, so far as regards this inferior race, rests upon this great immutable law of nature. You always have to get worried in history when people start talking about how human beings or human behavior is rooted in nature. But how do we get to 1861 and that secession crisis with Alexander H. Stevens delivering this cornerstone speech, declaring that, hey folks, it's all about slavery and its preservation. How did we get there? Today I want to talk about, we're going to dwell on, ultimately, the Southern defense of slavery. The arguments over time that they develop, layer upon layer, drawing upon earlier arguments, building them into new ones, sometimes quite original, toward, ult toward ultimately a virtually utopian defense of slavery as a perfecting perfectible, if not perfected, system. Now, I want to say one other quick thing before we get to the substance. A thousand times in a thousand ways, anybody who studies the American Civil War period is inevitably asked, so what caused this war? That's, of course, the question of the first third of this course. So what caused it? Yesterday, on ML King Day, I had the privilege of being on at least four radio programs about this new book I have out called A Slave No More. Some of them quite terrific. Uh, Minnesota Public Radio does a fabulous hour-long program. But one of them was on a Nashville, Tennessee radio station on a program at 5.30 p.m. called Drive Time. And the host was Harry or Pete or whoever he was. I've been on too many of these. First question was, so Professor, what was the Civil War about? Now do that in a soundbite on a Nashville radio station when you've got two minutes to answer. Well, Pete, you see, uh, there was this free labor system and this slave labor system, blah, 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 blah. I tried to soundbite this. And I ended up saying something silly like, you know, Pete, I'm teaching a whole course on this.
And I finally just ended that particular little exchange before he went on to rant at me about all that's wrong with American education by saying, Pete, uh, it, it, it was slavery. <laughs> and Alexis de Tocqueville's Great Democracy in America, which he published in 1831, or he published in 1837 after his famous nine-month tour of the United States, the most famous book, travel book ever written about America by a foreigner. In Democracy in America, there's that famous passage or passages when Tocqueville crosses the Ohio River from Ohio into Kentucky, from free soil into slave soil, free state into a slave state. Tocqueville, you may know, didn't spend a great deal of time in the South, though he traveled all across the South. He spent, oh, at least two-thirds of his, more than about three-quarters of his time in the northern states. But when he crossed into Kentucky, he wrote this letter to his father. For the first time, this is, of course, the French aristocrat de Tocqueville, for the first time we have had the chance to examine the effect that slavery produces on a society. On the right bank of the Ohio, everything is activity, industry, labor is honored, there are no slaves. Pass to the left bank and the scene changes so suddenly that you think yourself on the other side of the world. The enterprising spirit seems gone. There, work is not only painful, it's shameful, and you degrade yourself in submitting yourself to it. To ride, to hunt, to smoke like a Turk, in the sun, to smoke like a Turk in the sunshine, there's the destiny of the white man. To do any other kind of manual labor is to act like a slave. Now, Tocqueville was, of course, responding from his own kind of French aristocratic heart to some extent. He was drawn in a bit to certain kinds of Southern charm. The whites, he said, of the South, form a veritable aristocracy, which combines many prejudices with high sentiments and instincts. He probably overjudged the scale of that aristocracy. They say, and I am much inclined to believe, said Tocqueville, that in the matter of honor, these men practice delicacies and refinements unknown in the North. They are frank, hospitable, and put many things before money. Oh, they'd have loved that when we start hearing from our pro-slavery advocates and writers, they would have loved that. Because one of the critiques that slavery allowed pro-slavery writers ultimately to make was a critique of a certain kind of capitalism. The greedy, grinding, aggressive, malicious kind of capitalism they believed the North embodied. But <clears throat> charm alone didn't seem to make a great society, according to Tocqueville. You see few churches and no schools here in the South, he observed. Society, like the individual, seems to provide nothing. The South would end, he said, by being dominated by the North. Every day, the latter grows more wealthy and densely populated, while the South is stationary 
and growing poor. You're not entirely accurate about that either from what we now know about the profitability of slavery and the profitability of the cotton crop. But he ends that famous section with this passage that is kind of haunting when you think it's only 1831 when he writes this and that civil war is still 30 years away. Slavery brutalizes the black population and debilitates the white. Man is not made for servitude. Now, in the South, what developed, and let's define it at least quickly, what developed was one of the world's handful of true slave societies. What is a slave society? What do we mean when we use that phrase, slave society? Essentially, it means any society where slave labor, where the definition of labor, where the, where the definition of the relationship between ownership and labor is defined by slavery, by a cradle-to-grave, and some would have even said a cradle-to-grave and beyond human bondage, where slavery affected everything about society, where whites and blacks, in this case in America, in a racialized slavery system, grew up, were socialized by, married, reared children, worked, invested in, and conceived of the idea of property, and honed their most basic habits and values under the influence of a system that said it was just to own people as property. The other slave societies in human history, and you can get up a real debate over this, uh, especially among Africanists, Brazilianists, Asianists, and others, and it's why slavery is such a hot field in, in, in international history. But the other great slave societies in history were, were the, in the whole social structure of those societies was rooted in slavery. Were ancient Greece and Rome, certainly Brazil by the 18th and 19th century, the whole of the Caribbean, the great West Indies sugar producing empires of the French, the British, the Dutch, the Spanish, and a few others, and the American South. Now, there were other localized slave societies, surely, certainly within Africa, to a certain degree even before Europeans arrived, and certainly after Europeans arrived, particularly after the regularization of the Atlantic slave trade. There were certain localized slave societies in East Africa, out of Zanzibar by the 18th and 19th century. There were certain localized slave societies in the vast Arab world, in the Muslim world, uh, well before there was even an Atlantic slave trade to the Americas. But the five great slave societies were those five. All were highly profitable in their prime. All tended to hinder technological innovation in those societies. All tended to have a high slave-to-free ratio of population. 
all of those slave societies had a population of slaves that was from one quarter to one half and sometimes more of the total population. In those slave societies, slaves as an interest, as an interest, were both a political <laughs> and a great economic institution that defined ways of life. Now, when exactly did the American South become a slave society? You know, is it 1820 with the Missouri crisis and that settlement and at least the beginnings now of a, of a clarity of its expansion or was it more the 1830s when you got this, this booming cotton production happening finally in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana or was it 1840? Or was it really in the wake of the Mexican War when you get this massive expansion into the, the, the Great Southwest and the Mexican Session, which we'll take up actually next week? That's, that's always open to debate exactly when the South became a slave society. But I think it became, in, in most ways and in most definitions, a slave society, surely, by the 1820s or the 1830s. Now, one aspect of that slave society, then, I want to focus on it just at least briefly, is that as Americans ended the foreign slave trade, and we did in 1808, this is, this month, is the bicentennial of the legal end of America's participation, the United States' participation in the foreign slave trade. Now, it didn't entirely end, and there were some South Carolinians and Georgians who wanted to reopen it, and a few folks out in Louisiana who wanted to reopen it at, n at numerous times in the antebellum period, especially in the late 1850s. They were the same people who were always trying to annex Cuba. About four times over they tried to annex Cuba, and it's still a bit of a mystery how it never happened. But as the foreign slave trade was closed off for a whole variety of reasons, only one of which was that there was this passage, sort of, a vow in the original Constitution that the question would be revisited in 20 years, and 1808 was 20 years. But as the foreign slave trade was cut off, the domestic American slave trade absolutely boomed. And one of the reasons that the American South could become such a profitable slave society, one of the reasons that the cotton boom could be the cotton boom is because one of the unique features of North American slavery, U.S. slavery, is or was that it was the only slave population in the entire New World. Brazil managed it now and then, but not in the long run. It's the only slave society in, in the New World where the slaves naturally reproduce themselves. That has to do with climate, that has to do with sex ratio, male to female, it has to do with diet, and it has to do with movement. If Freddie Jackson Turner had anything right in the frontier thesis, although he didn't pay hardly any attention to the South, this idea of a safety valve of a West to move to was surely there for slavery. Between 1810 and 1820 alone, this is the decade of the War of 1812, which caused all kinds of chaos on the Western frontier. 
137,000 American slaves were forced to move from North Carolina or the Chesapeake states to Alabama, Mississippi, and other western regions. That's in the one decade of the teens. Then from 1820 to 1860, the 40 years before the war, an estimated roughly 2 million American slaves were sold to satisfy the need of slave labor in the great cotton kingdom of the growing Southwest. Now, about roughly two-thirds of those two million slaves moved from the eastern seaboard or the upper south to Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, Arkansas, etc. About two-thirds of those went by outright sale, by financial speculation in now a growing, huge American business of the domestic slave trade. By the 1830s, 1840s, there were over 100 men in Charleston, South Carolina alone, making their livings full-time as slave traders. Their ads were in the newspapers every day. Many of them owned their own shops and their own, in effect, jails where they housed people. Other cities became major ports or uh, places of deportation for the domestic slave trade. Richmond, Virginia, for example, became a huge slave trading center uh, by the 1840s and 1850s. It had two, depending on when you look, to three dozen major full-time slave traders. One of the richest was a man named Hector Davis. Hector Davis owned a two-story slave auction house jail on 14th and Franklin Streets, just two blocks down the hill from Thomas Jefferson's glorious Capitol building of the state of Virginia, just two blocks down the hill from that great equestrian statue of George Washington, the founder, you could find a huge slave jail owned by Hector Davis. Hector Davis kept tremendous records. He kept account books, huge account books. One of those account books ended up in the Chicago Historical Society after the Civil War because it was confiscated by an Illinois regiment that took it home. And I worked with that account book because one of the two slaves I write about in this new book called The Slave No More, I published their two narratives, was indeed a young 14-year-old teenager sold out of North Carolina, uh, from Snow Hill, North Carolina. He was sold in 1860 to Hector Davis in Richmond. Hector Davis purchased him for $900. For about six months, Wallace Turnage worked in Hector Davis's slave auction house, helping organize the auctions every day. And one day, Wallace was told, Today, boy, you're in the auction. And he was sold for $1,000 to an Alabama cotton planter who came up to Richmond twice a year to buy slaves. And 72 hours by train, he found himself on a huge cotton plantation near Pickensville, Alabama, on the, in, in west central Alabama on the Mississippi border at 14 years old. More on Wallace Turner's later in the course. He, he'll be sold again, by the way, a third time for $2,000 in Mobile, Alabama, at the, at the Mobile Slave Jail. I calculated in Hector Davis's account book that the biggest week he had, and he had some big weeks, but he had a week in 1859 where he made a cool approximately $120,000 in profit just from selling slaves. I mean, the equivalent of a, of a healthy teenage male slave, if you could sell him for $1,000 in 1860, it's about the same price 
of a good Toyota Camry today. And when I go to the A1 Toyota for my service or to buy my new Camry, which I've done every four years for the last two decades, I don't always think of a slave market, but it does occur to me. But <laughs> they just sell those Toyotas. They tell you, here's the price. We don't bargain. The South was part of the westward movement. For slave children, one of the little point about this, we can get a sense of this system that is now about to be justified and defended. For slave children, between 1820 and 1860, living in the Upper South or the Eastern Seaboard, they had approximately a 30% chance of being sold outright away from their parents before they were 10. Now, just to give you a sense of how cold and calculated this business was, and how in many ways the first defense or justification of, this, of slavery in America is, of course, it certainly is by the late antebellum period, it is an unabashed economic defense, as we'll see. Ads in newspapers like this one in Charleston would read, Negroes wanted. I am paying the highest cash prices for young and likely Negroes, those having good front teeth and being otherwise sound. It's all about market forces and the health and the condition of your product. Probably the best book written on this, particularly on the language of the domestic slave trade, is Walter Johnson's book called Soul by Soul, a book I highly recommend you read at some time in your reading lives. But it's amazing to read the letters and the language of slave traders when they write to each other. The complacency, the, the mixture of, of, of just pure racism on the one hand and just business language on the other. I refused a girl 20 years old at $700 yesterday, one trader wrote to another in 1853. If you think best to take her at 700, I can still get her. She is very badly whipped, but has good teeth. Bought a cook yesterday, wrote another trader. Bought a cook yesterday that was to go out of the state. She just made the people mad, that was all. I have bought a boy named Isaac, wrote another trader, for $1,100. He writes this in 1854 to his partner. Bought a boy named Isaac. I think him very prime. He is a house servant, first-rate cook, and splendid carriage driver. He is also a fine painter and varnisher, and says he can make a fine panel door. Also, he performs well on the violin. He is a genius, and it's strange to say, I think he's smarter than I am. Truth always creeps through all of our language. It doesn't always, but sometimes creeps through our language, doesn't it? Now, how is slavery defended? 
in many ways, to say the least. But I want to give you at least some sense of the, the development of the pro-slavery argument, uh, the kinds of arguments that were used, how they changed over time, who made the arguments. Now, the best way to begin to understand pro-slavery ideology, uh, whether we're in the early period of its defense in the 1820s, actually a quite virulent defense of slavery begins early. It isn't something that just sprung from southern pens in the 1850s during all this expansion. It comes very early. But a framework in which to understand it is that pro-slavery ideology was at its heart a kind of deeply conservative, organic world view. And by that I mean a Burkean conservatism, a set of beliefs that says the world is ordered as it is for reasons. And that human beings ought not tinker with that order very much. It was a set of beliefs in the sustenance of a social order as it is. It was a belief in a hierarchical conception of not only society, but of people. That people were conceived, whether by nature or by God or even by evolution with a certain order to them. Some born to do this, and some born to do that, and some born to do that. It's an organic conception of the world. It just is the way it is. It's natural. Remember back to Alexander H. Stevens' cornerstone quote. He uses the word natural twice in that passage. This worldview had, of course, an obsession with stability. It's one of the reasons white Southerners didn't like reformers. It's one of the reasons abolitionists are dangerous. What are abolitionists calling for? Upsetting the social order. They're offering a critique of the social order. And they're even, they even have the audacity to talk about good and evil. It's a, it's a worldview often obsessed, as we said last time, with notions of honor and duty. And it's a worldview deeply rooted in the idea or respect for tradition. Tradition and social control. In this worldview, institutions, human institutions, evolve only slowly over time and cannot be altered by abrupt human interventions. It's dangerous to abruptly intervene in the evolution of human institutions. Now think what's at stake here in this worldview, especially as we transition next Thursday to a developing, though by no means unanimous or, or homogenous, northern worldview in which reform impulses get embedded. White southern defenders of slavery were to some extent like other Americans, products of the Enlightenment, some of them come to really believe in intellect. They really do come to believe in the power of reason of human beings to figure out the universe, but to figure it out in different ways. You can be a product of the Enlightenment and still be deeply conservative. You can be a product of the Enlightenment with the faith in reason 
and not become a romantic who begins to believe in the possibilities of man or even the perfectibility of man. Conservatism, deep organic forms of conservatism is not, antith is not antithetical to the Enlightenment, at least not entirely. Although pro-slavery writers will become deeply uh, contemptuous of natural law, of natural law doctrine as it can be applied to the possibilities of man. Many of them will argue, therefore, that ideas like freedom and I, that idea of liberty, so much at stake in the age of the American Revolution and falling off everybody's tongue and eventually falling off their tongues and off their pens as well. What they're fighting for by 1861 were their liberties, they said, over and over and over and over again. But in their worldview, the pro-slavery worldview, ideas like freedom and liberty were simply never absolutes. And many of them will directly reverse Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence and simply say, nobody is born equal. They will argue over and over and over again, some of them almost in a feudalistic way, that freedom must always be balanced with order. And that order is rooted in certain kinds of prescribed stations in life for the various statuses of humans. Or freedom, they will argue, must be balanced with tradition. The possibilities of freedom must always, in their view, be balanced with the world as it is, not as it ought to be. They are therefore going to have an extremely different point of view from at least abolitionists in the North on this concept of equality, although a lot of abolitionists had their struggles with this one too. Southern pro-slavery defenders are much more likely to stress a human's duty than they're ever to stress a human's rights. They believe the world was made up of a struggle between human autonomy on the one hand and human dependency on the other, and you should never give up on that dependency. As early as 1826, an important pro-slavery writer named Edward Brown argued that slavery, he said, quote, had ever been the stepping ladder by which nations have passed from barbarism to civilization. There you have the roots and the kernel of the so-called positive good thesis about slavery. That slavery was a way in which you sustained a social order, a way in which you built an economy, a way in which you maximized the possibilities of those who deserved it by using those who did not deserve the same fruits. Pro-slavery writers, you have to understand, and also a really a, a, often a fundamentally different conception of history itself or of how history happens, then will many eventually northern anti-slavery writers, even eventually 
the political anti-slavery folks like an Abraham Lincoln, who was never a real abolitionist, but did at least grow up with anti-slavery in his heart. Thomas R. Dew, very important pro-slavery writer, who wrote a whole book in the wake of the state of Virginia's debates in 1830 and 32, or 30 and 31, 31 and 32, over whether to rewrite its constitution, and they squarely faced the question of a gradual abolition plan for the state of Virginia in 1831 and 32. They had been planning to rewrite their constitution, an extraordinary turning point in Southern history. The problem was, of course, Nat Turner's insurrection. It just occurred in October of 1831, and they held these debates in the wake of it. And Dew wrote a forceful defense of slavery in the wake of this, which became kind of a a seminal text for all future pro-slavery writers. Among the many things he said in that was this simple sense of how history happens. There is a time for all things, wrote Dew, and nothing in this world should be done before its time. Now what would you do if your parents told you that? They probably have. What would you do if your professors told you that all the time? Stop trying to change things. Nothing will change before it's time. You'll probably get bored or angry. Oh, who knows? Maybe you would just agree. I don't know. Youth are supposed to be impatient. Now, um, there are many ways to look at pro-slavery. Deep, deep in the pro-slavery argument, and I'm going to give you categories here to hang your hats on. Deep in the pro-slavery argument is a biblical argument. Almost all pro-slavery writers at one point or another will dip into the Old Testament or dip into the New Testament. They especially would dip to the Old to show how slavery is an ancient and venerable institution. Its venerability was its own argument, some said. It's always been around. Every civilization has had it. All those biblical societies had it. You can read Jeremiah and Isaiah and some of the great Old Testament prophets in some ways as defenders of slavery. You can therefore assume it was divinely sanctioned. You can also look in the New Testament for examples of it justifications of it. Slaves be, uh, be honorable, be, be dutiful, be obedient is usually the word in the King James. Slaves be obedient to your masters. Slavery's all over the Bible in one way or another. The Bible, of course, can breathe anti-slavery into a situation and it can breathe pro-slavery into a situation. A second kind of set of arguments I've already referred to are the historical ones. Here it is not just the venerability of slavery, how old it is, but it's the idea that it has been crucial to the development of all great civilizations. That slavery may have its bad aspects, but it has been the, cre the engine of good. It has been the engine of empires, the engine of wealth, the engine of greatness. How would you have had Cicero? How would you have had the great Roman philosophers and thinkers? 
How would you have had the great Greek playwrights, they would argue, without the system, the world the Greeks were able to create with the helots? That at the base of all societies there has to be a labor system that will support the possibility of Plato. Pro-slavery ideology is also part of, at the same time, it's resistant to the greatest product, arguably, of the Enlightenment, and that is the idea of natural rights. Natural law, natural rights, rights by birth, rights from God, being born with certain capacity. Now, pro-slavery writers were inspired by this to some extent, but many of them will simply convert it. They will convert it. They'll take portions of John Locke that they like and not the others, and they'll say, the real rule of the world is not natural equality, but it is natural inequality. Humans are not all born the same, with the same capacities, abilities. Now, then there's a whole array of economic arguments. And the cynic, the economic determinist, simply goes to the economic conclusions of pro-slavery and nowhere else. Um, one of the greatest of these writers was James Henry Hammond, South Carolina planner who had plenty of mixed-race children. He was in some ways the epitome of the kind of cynical pro-slavery. In the end of the day, he wasn't bothered by morality. His argument for slavery was that ultimately it was amoral. But at the end of the day, he also essentially made a property argument or a property defense of slavery. He wrote, among other things, the means therefore, whatever they may have been, by which the African race now in this country have been reduced to slavery cannot affect us, since they are our property, as your land is your property, by inheritance or purchase and prescriptive right. You will say that man cannot hold property in man. The answer is that he can, and actually does, hold property in his fellow all over the world in a variety of forms, and has always done so. Thank you very much, said Henry Hammond. Don't talk to me about property in man. Oh, some would get guilty. Indeed they did. Some would get worried, and they would discuss slavery as a necessary evil. This system entailed upon them. God, they wish they were without it. And some of them, frankly, folks, were deeply sincere in that. One of the most famous and one of the most prolific was a man named Charles Colcock Jones, who owned a huge rice and partly cotton plantation system in low country Georgia, just south of Savannah. He and his family uh, wrote literally thousands upon thousands of letters. Those family letters have been published in a book called The Children of Pride, and a brilliant book has been written about Colcock Jones and his extended family 
by Erskine Clark called Dwelling Place. But one of the fascinating things about Charles Colcock Jones, born in the late 18th century, uh, rises to adulthood by the teens, 1820s, is he's a classic example of the highly educated Southern planter. He came north. He was educated in theology at Yale for a while. He was really affected by it. And then he went up to Andover uh, Theological Academy, and he taught there, and he was affected even more by New England theologians. And he began to write back first to his fiancée, who quickly became his wife, Mary, and he was really worried about all the slaves he owned. He writes, for example, to Mary, I am moreover undecided whether I ought to continue to hold slaves, he underlines hold slaves, as to the principle of slavery, it is wrong. It is unjust, contrary to nature and religion, to hold men enslaved. But the question is, in my present circumstances, with evil on my hands and tailed from my father, would the general interest of the slaves and community at large, with reference to the slaves, be promoted best by emancipation? Could I do more for the ultimate good of the slave population by holding or emancipating what I own. I know not very particularly how you feel on this point. And there are many letters like that. He and his wife Mary write back and forth about how evil slavery is. But in the end, Colcock Jones becomes a classic example of the guilty pro-slavery slaveholder. He doesn't know how to free them. He doesn't know how to go to emancipation. Instead, he develops a highly intricate theory of how he's going to use slavery to save black people. He's going to ameliorate their conditions. He's going to make their slavery on his plantations so effective, so good, such a even joyous form of labor that he will be doing God's work by improving slavery. It's a, it's a genuinely tragic sort of story in his case. There are plenty of pro-slavery writers who also, to some extent, whether out of guilt or out of awareness, saw slavery as wrong, but they saw it as a problem more for white people than for black people. Their concern was not the conditions of blacks, but what slavery did to whites. And usually they ended up in the same situation as Colcock Jones. There are many pro-slavery writers who developed, like James Henry Hammond, what I would call the cynical or amoral form of pro-slavery argument. And this is a potent form of argument when you think about it. One of them was a writer named William Harper, who wrote a book called Memoir of Slavery in 1837 or 38. Uh, it's an oft-quoted work of pro-slavery writing. This is just one little passage. This is this kind of cynical, if you want, defense of slavery. It is what it is. Deal with it. He wrote, man is born to subjection. The condition of our whole existence is but to struggle with evil, to compare them, to choose between them, evils, that is. 
and so far as we can to mitigate them. To say that there is evil in any institution is only to say that it is a human institution. And James, James, uh, uh, Harper's writing in the 30s. James Henry Hammond starts writing in the 40s and into the 50s. He takes that much further. And he writes over and over and over again that the only problem with slavery in America, said James Henry Hammond, is that too damn many Northerners didn't understand it is the way of the world as it is, and they ought to stop talking about the world as it ought to be. And Hammond even aggressively, directly took on Thomas Jefferson. I'm sorry. Harper did, even before him. Here's Harper on Jefferson. It is not the first time that I have had occasion to observe that men may repeat with the utmost confidence some maxim or sentimental phrase as self-evident or admitted truth, which is either palpably false or to which upon examination it will be found that they attach no definite idea. Notwithstanding our respect for the important document which declared our independence, yet if anything be found in it, and especially in what may be regarded rather as its ornament than its substance, false, sophistical, and unmeaning, that respect should not screen it from the freest examination. All men are born free and equal, he says with a question mark. Is it not palpably nearer the truth to say that no man was ever born free and that no two men were ever born equal? Man is born in a state of the most helpless dependence on other people. And then there's the whole vast category of racial defense and justification of slavery. At the end of the day, that's where Alexander H. Stevens went with his cornerstone speech in 1861. That's where all of them went at one point or another, some less than others. Probably the most prominent pro-slavery writer to make the racial case, and they all did, but probably the most prominent was George Fitzhugh. In a book called Sociology of the South, he's also the same George Fitzhugh who wrote a book called Cannibals All, but in Sociology of the South, his famous pro-slavery tract in 1854, he wrote this. The Negro, he said, is but a grown-up child and must be governed as a child. The master occupies toward him the place of parent or guardian. Like a wild horse, he must be caught, tamed, and domesticated. We find slavery repeatedly instituted by God or by men acting under his immediate care and direction, as in the instance of Moses and Joshua. Nowhere in the Old or New Testament do we find the institution condemned, but frequently recognized and enforced. And probably his most famous line, men are not born entitled to equal rights. It would be far nearer the truth to say that some are born with saddles on their backs and others booted and spurred to ride them. And lastly, there was a kind of utopian pro-slavery. It was best exemplified by a writer in Mississippi named Henry Hughes. Henry Hughes was one strange duck. He lived in New Orleans. He was eccentric as hell. He wrote an amazing diary. He was a loner. 
He urged revival of the slave trade in the late 1850s, and he developed a theory of what he called warrantyism, W-A-R-R-A-N-T-E-E-I-S-M. He said slaves were not slaves, they were warranties. What he meant was they were the charges put in the world for slaveholders to care for, and if possible, even to protect and perfect. He believed in a strong central state, which was a real departure for him from the rest of the pro-slavery writers. He wanted a strong central government to regulate everything. He wanted huge taxation. He wanted to build institutions that would be used for the sole purpose of perfecting the slave into the perfect worker. He was a bit of a mad scientist, and he was especially obsessed with racial purity. His writings are just replete with his fears about hygiene, that if white and black people touched or if they came together, the whites would be soiled and that any kind of intermixing of the races was to destroy, ultimately, the intellect, the ability, the capacity of a master race. He wasn't that widely read, I must admit, but it shows us how far pro-slavery could ultimately go. In Hughes's vision, in Hughes's worldview, slavery was not only a positive good, it was the possibility of man finding a perfected society with the perfect landowners, do, fulfilling their obligations, supported by a government who taxed the hell out of them to do it, and perfect workers who would make the South into the agricultural utopian civilization of history. Now, Fox says I've run out of time. Let me just leave you with this. All of that is a way of simply saying there was a deep and abiding and well-rehearsed, indeed thousands of pages were written, in defense of slavery. It wasn't just a profitable financial institution. And if you want to understand why so many white Southerners, especially in the Deep South, went to such great extents to save their slave society, remember the kinds of arguments and language used by its defenders. Thursday, we'll take up the North and the critique of this ideology.